0: Hi, I'm Michaela mcguire scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. This episode shines a light on the difficult questions confronting communities as they seek to rebuild in the wake of devastating natural disasters. This panel draws on the experiences of Professor Elizabeth Mossop and Community Leader Dan Etheridge, who were at the front line of the New Orleans Hurricane Katrina. We also hear from Principal Consultant for Water Technology, Jamie Simmons. I'll let our Chairperson, Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney, Nicole Garner, start us off.
1: Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge that we are here on the beautiful unceded lands of the Wajibul Wajjubil people of the Bundjalung nation. And I pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land and thank them for caring for country since deep time. And I pay my respects to the ongoing community leadership and caring for country And once a year, we run the Festival of Urbanism, which has a week-long program of events in Sydney, but we also try to take that festival out of Sydney to look at issues that have deep meaning for local communities, like the Northern Rivers, but also which are extremely significant nationally and, in fact, internationally. And I can't think, actually, of any more significant issues than resilience planning them responding to natural disasters, um, and in looking at what long topic for today. Before I go any further, I should also explain my own connection to this place. Um, I have a few roles as well as being advisor to the Living Lab, particularly around housing and urban planning, because my 20 years plus as a researcher in Sydney and in Australia has been focused on housing and affordable housing and urban planning. I also serve on the National Reconstruction Corporation's... um, Sorry, the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation expert advisory panel. And in that capacity, that's a role advising with a number of people about potential uh, redevelopment sites for the future uh, resilience and rebuilding of the Northern Rivers. And I also grew up here. I um, arrived here in March uh, 1974, which might ring a bell for some people. It was actually the eve of the 74 flood. My family arrived at Lismore City Caravan Park. We didn't have time to put the annex up before we were... High tiling it to Ballina and then Brisbane, and eventually, about 12 months later, we moved back to the Lismore City Caravan Park and spent the next five years actually. You know, there, was a, there were a lot of floods between 74 and 79, which is when my family um, moved to Gunnelabar. So, having explained a little bit about myself, why are we here in Lismore then talking about New Orleans? And not talking at this point in time, this afternoon, about Lismore. Well, already there have been many comparisons between Lismore and New Orleans in terms of the scale of the disaster. In fact, many people have said, and I'm sure you may indeed be sick of hearing, that Lismore, unfortunately, has been Australia's New Orleans event. But in the future, people will also look to Lismore to learn, in the same way that we look to New Orleans to learn about what was done right or what was done wrong in the wake of that devastating emergency. Now, New Orleans' story has been running for a long time, but the story here in the Northern Rivers region is just beginning, and there's a chance, I think, to make it very different People are going to look to the Northern Rivers in the future, people in Australia and internationally, and they're going to be asking, how do you, what should you do and what should you not do when it comes to responding and rebuilding and reconstructing in the wake of natural disasters? And the story here is just beginning, and I think, and you'll be the judges of this today, but I think there's a lot to be learned from this story in New Orleans. So, with that, let me introduce our three speakers. We've got Dan Etheridge, who I imagine is known to many of you here. He's the director of the Living Lab Northern Rivers. He's got over 18 years' experience in public interest design. And he worked for Tulane University in Louisiana working with the School of Architecture there to open a community design centre which was founded to support resident-driven recovery and rebuilding in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Dan helped direct that centre for 10 years and helped build it into one of the leading university-based community design centres in the United States. Beyond this, of course, Dan has worked for governments, nonprofits, and universities on projects relating to community driven design and planning, disaster recovery, and developing partnership models and collaborative design processes. Professor Elizabeth Mossop is Dean. She was Dean of the uh, UTS School of Design, Architecture and Building, and she's a landscape architect and urbanist with wide-ranging experience across uh, landscape design and urban planning. Among her many roles, she was involved in many aspects of the post-hurricane reconstruction of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, as well as, and this is an interesting side note, probably not at all relevant to you um, in Lismore, but I think uh, fascinating, also um, has been involved in the revitalisation of Detroit. Her academic career spans over 25 years. She was Professor of Landscape Architecture and Director of the Robert Reich School of Landscape Architecture at Louisiana State University, one of the highest ranked um landscape architecture programs in the US of course the world and she was once director of the master of landscape Er architecture program at the Harvard Graduate uh, School of Design probably um, the most famous and well respected design school in the world And last, we have um, Jamie Simmons, uh, Project Director for the relocation of the town of Grantham, Queensland, another reference point before Lismore, of course. Uh, Jamie has over 20 years' experience managing all aspects of complex development projects for both the public and private sectors. So with that, I'm going to actually start, and we'll ask the first question to Elizabeth. And look, this is a really basic question and like many of you here, you may have actually watched New Orleans with horror um, when it happened but I think it's worth actually starting back at that point point. And, and I might ask you, Elizabeth, if you could refresh our minds about the nature and the scale of Hurricane Katrina and even when and where it occurred because I can see some young people in the audience as well and a special welcome to you.
2: OK. Obviously, Hurricane Katrina a hurricane, a huge hurricane, not so uncommon on the Gulf Coast, but what was particularly noticeable about Hurricane Katrina was it hit the city of New Orleans, fair and square, on the eastern side of the city, and led to massive flooding of 80% of the city. And I'm just going to give you a tiny bit of context of the the way the Mississippi originally was, a sort of a free-flowing river system meandering through the delta and building the delta. Over the course of the 20th century, the Army Corps of Engineers armoured the river, constrained it with levees, and so what that meant was that there was a lot more control over the river, but it also makes the surrounding areas very vulnerable any time that that levee system fails. And also a reminder, this is the, you can see the Mississippi River in the south, the area in the middle where New Orleans was developed and Lake Pontchartrain in the north. And when the city was originally settled, this entire area was a swamp. And in order to allow the city to develop, that swamp was drained. And so what happens when you do that, when you withdraw all of the water from these swampy conditions and these peaty soils, is that over time, and you can see this series of sections over time, over time, as that land dries out, it sinks. And, it conti- and while it remains dry, it continues to sink. And so that is what has left us with this situation here. You can see on the left-hand side of this section is, this is the Mississippi River, and you can see this is the city, way down below that level. There's a ridge in the center of it, and on this side is Lake Pontchartrain. So that today, the city of New Orleans is well down below sea level. So it makes it, so it's like a bathtub makes it particularly vulnerable. And this plan is trying to explain what happened when the hurricane hit. It came, it came from the eastern part of the city, which used to be protected over here by extensive swamps and wetlands, which have been degraded by the oil industry and by the lack of the replenishment of the delta over time.
3: One of the main things that's driven the destruction of the wetlands is the success of the flood mitigation works completed after the 1927 flood. So the Mississippi River flooding used to be the main source of worry for the city after the large flood in 1927. They actually fixed that problem and in doing so disconnected the river from the floodplain, causing the loss of the wetlands and making New Orleans now extremely vulnerable to hurricanes coming off the Gulf. And that's an important point. that. This was driven by a very successful flood mitigation program after the 1927
2: flood. Yep. The winds, the storm surge coming in from the east, overtopping the levees through here. You also have same kind of thing circling around, coming down from Lake Pontchartrain. And so you have all of these levees along here, overtopped by water, and you have the lake levees also overtopped, you have stormwater pushing into the city through all of these canals, and then what happens is you have a series of, I think you can see little, little yellow stars in these various places where we then have a catastrophic collapse of the flood walls. And so you have massive quantities of water coming here into the Lower Ninth Ward, here, here, all of these neighbourhoods. And so over the course of that night, that entire bathtub that we saw in section fills up with water. And you can see here these deepest areas had over 10 feet, uh, but uh, you know, only these areas that you see in the beige were not flooded. And interestingly, you'll see that's the area along the Mississippi River where you have that natural levee. So that's the, this is, in fact, the highest part of the city, lowest parts here and down here and down in the, in the bottom of the bowl. So the important thing to remember about this, it wasn't the hurricane that caused the catastrophic damage. The actual disaster is a human-created disaster. The disaster was the failure of the levy system.
3: As a matter of fact, they're like, this is, a, this is the federal levy failure disaster and not a natural disaster. There is, that's a point made passionately in the city.
2: And it's really important to remember about so many of these natural disasters is that they are the result, we, we, we create them over the decades that, that come before them. You know, the series of, of things that make these disasters so terrible are things that are very often that we have created over a long time of political decisions or land management uh, or, in this case, corruption, shonky construction, etc. And so here you can see just a description of what happens with the overtopping of those, uh, of those walls along the, the river that was better protected, and then down here in the bottom of the bowl, and that water sat there for more than six weeks, because the other thing that failed was all of the city's <coughs> pumping infrastructure, because all of the pumping infrastructure was at ground level. So, of course, it was the first thing to go, It filled up with water, and then there was no way of getting the water out of the city because gravity is not on your side when you're below sea level. As a landscape architect, it took me so long to get my head around this, the fact that gravity wasn't ever going to help you to get rid of the water. So um, this is just a reminder. I'm sure those of you that are old enough saw the kinds of... of images of what was going on in New Orleans. The scenes of absolutely desperate people unable to get out of the city. There was no mandatory evacuation. There's very little public transport here. People without cars did not have the means to evacuate. The city also had a tradition of not evacuating, instead of having hurricane parties where you would stock up on liquor and lock yourselves in the house and have a great big party, which is fine, provided the hurricane doesn't actually, actually hit. So, you know, these are not things that you expect to see in the richest country on earth. Barges from the canals in neighbourhoods and just catastrophic devastation. In some of these neighbourhoods, nothing bigger than matchsticks was left of people's houses. So, you know, those of you, you know, who are very sort of familiar with what happened here, you know, a lot of, a lot of parallels. <laughs> these are the buses that were not used to evacuate the population sitting there in the floodwaters. And this, these horrible mould-infested refrigerators are starting to give you some idea of the kind of scale of, of the impact.
3: I, I can almost smell it again, just looking at that picture. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Relatively quickly, uh, once the floodwaters were gone, and that took varying amounts of time in different parts of the city, uh, started to see demolition crews coming in. From very early on, there were some really significant political issues that began to surface. Um, Some quite controversial decisions were made, for example, to demolish all of the city's public housing. Do you
3: want to talk about that yeah so the rates of household income than the state and national average it, it's always been a working class blue collar city with high rates of poverty which means people that were impacted off you know typically had less resources to help themselves we had a very large population living in public housing most of those concentrated in what they called the Big Four, the four largest public housing developments. These housed approximately 6,000 families. So these are large developments. Um, They were known as, by people outside of them as places of crime, of desperation, of horror. um, And to the people that living inside of them, those things but also the only community they have they in the absence of other services took care of each other so it was a complicated situation so and this is a theme that comes up with Katrina and I'm sure you will talk about it a little bit later but uh, after the disaster there was the opportunity to try whatever the new idea was at the time and so with public housing it was a program called Hope 6 which was really create it was replacing 100% public housing in the development with a mixed-use development, mixed income, sorry. So federal government subsidising developers to come in and replace that housing, only a portion of which was to go back to public housing residents, and the public housing residents were given vouchers to go be subsidised in other places. this was very controversial, we can talk about it a little more later, but essentially what it meant in the short term was that at least six at least 6,000 families were looking at not only their home being literally demolished, and in many cases I'll say these were very well-made buildings that were a lot of well-made arguments that they could be repaired quite quickly and easily, we'll put that one aside, but it's at least 10 years till these housing developments were rebuilt. So... You know, you can imagine the kind of impact that had on people.
2: And so one of the other things that happened in the immediate aftermath was a massive influx of volunteers, of lots and lots of different Christian groups. I can remember, you know, always coming across bunches of Mennonites from the Midwest or Brethren from Pennsylvania who were there with their church groups who were working with church groups in the city or who had connected with other community groups, lots and lots of young people volunteering to come in. Um, huge amount of energy coming into this, uh, coming into this city, particularly around the sort of uh, demolition and, and clean-up work. Uh, one of the other things, I just thought placing this in, in context, you can see New Orleans is here. You can see how vulnerable it is, this eastern side. So this is a map of the predicted land loss across the delta to 2050, and that all happened. All of that land was lost in Hurricane Katrina. So you can see massive, massive impact on this delta landscape, making this city more and more vulnerable. The other thing that happened, you, you, you might remember there was very little action on the part of the federal government. George W. was in his second term. And one of the things that was quite striking in the city was that there were, before the American forces got to New Orleans, there was a British hospital ship that was there, there were Canadian-mounted police, there were troops from Mexico, all of those people got to the city to help in the disaster before anything was, was mobilised in, in the US. So one can't help being somewhat suspicious. When it was going on at the time and everyone was saying, oh, it's a conspiracy, it's a conspiracy, and I'm thinking, oh, that's crazy talk. I came to believe, yes, it was a conspiracy, in fact, to try to disperse much of the New Orleans population, because New Orleans remained one of the only Democrat voting blocks in the South, which had turned massively Republican in the 10 years before this. And what you can see here is what happened to that that population. This massive, because the city was closed, because people couldn't return to their neighborhoods, they dispersed over much of the, much of the, much of the US to find safe accommodation, to find jobs, to put their kids in school.
3: They went to do those things, Elizabeth just said, but not necessarily by choice. Yes, you couldn't be in New Orleans, but if you didn't have resources to take care of yourself, you were given a one-way ticket somewhere. I've personally heard dozens of stories of people saying, I didn't know where I was going till the pilot announced where we just landed. There's a social service provider meeting people at the plane, and that's it. And a lot of those people have never come back. And nearly all of these people are low-income African-Americans that made up the majority of the city. And so the conspiracy theory is also sitting on the back of consistent structural racism in the South for the preceding 300 years. So there was plenty of good evidence for why you might go in a conspiracy direction. Well, the population of the city at the time of Katrina was around 460,000. And as of, I think it was January 2007, so about 18 months later, it was still at about a third of that. So over 80% of the population was like this. And it took about 12 years to get back to the pre-Katrina population. Population.
2: And that number refers to the city of New Orleans, yeah. which is the central city. It's actually a city of over a million people. They count but people differently in yeah. America. So it's yeah.
3: the, the urbanised part of the city, not the suburbs.
2: And then um, very soon after the disaster, within <coughs> three, four, five months, we started to see a lot of, a lot of planning activity. I would say, not by the government. So, we had seen massive failure, as I mentioned, at the federal government. Also, I would say, at the level of the state government and particularly at the level of the, of the city government. Um, and so, this kind of vacuum led to many, many groups coming in to do plans for the city. Not sure if we're starting to see any parallels here yet. But, and I just, because I was going through my archives, you know, sort of in thinking about this, I came across a whole series of these different plans. This is a rebuilding plan from the Urban Land Institute. And one of the things you'll see in in these plans is a differentiation between these very lowest lying areas the areas that are most robust, and then these hatched areas that are sort of in between. So this is a sort of a, a, a professional body doing this work.
3: Based on the same kind of risk analysis framework that we've, we've had here too, they have broke things up into a high, medium, and lower risk category and made determinations in the early stages of planning.
2: This was part of a, a plan called the Bring New Orleans Back Plan that was developed under the auspices of the city. Uh, A a wide group of local experts and stakeholders were assembled to develop this plan. About halfway through that process, they were all told services would no longer be required and the city did a plan uh, with a group of consultants, again, which used these same kinds of categories in terms of the different neighbourhoods, in terms of their robustness to the flooding, looked at ways of of managing uh, how this might come back, what areas would be prioritised for development, but they got into enormous trouble with this diagram, which, uh, you know, shows these sort of existing open space, the existing parks, the idea of these canals as open space connectors, but they had these what are now famously referred to as the green dots. These areas of the city identified as areas for future parkland. And again, no consultation with, with former or, or current residents, these areas are of course, at this point, full of people's houses, whether they're flooded or not. And so this caused an absolute explosion of public anger that b- basically killed off, uh, killed off what was in many ways a very sensible plan, but it had, there was no way that that was going to uh, work after that. And then one thing that was achieved, one plan, and again, this is actually later on in the process, but a revisiting of the city's um, infrastructure around flood protection and hurricane protection. And this involved things like uh, relocating all of the pumping stations uh, into elevated, Positions so that they would be protected from floodwaters next time, the rebuilding of the flood walls um, along the canals and some very major sort of flood infrastructure being built to the east of the city. You can see massive surge protection gates here being built. And so that what that means is that now, the city does have much more effective flood protection, only for hurricanes up to a Category 3 hurricane, but a vast improvement on the situation before, and it has protected the city, for example, from Hurricane Ida, which was a couple of years ago. Two
3: years ago, and just a couple of points... It's kind of like the one in 200 year flood one in, you know, and some of these terms get a little misleading and complicated. The hurricane categories also, Katrina was a category three, but precisely where it landed and how it behaved at the point of making landfall made it really a dangerous one. Hurricane Ida, which is the first test this system got, this system cost $14 billion to build and was finished. I think about 2017 or so, it took more than 10 years. Um, so Hurricane Ida was a category five, but was moving a bit faster, came at a slightly different, provided a really excellent test. There were plenty of nervous people at the US Army Corps of Engineers that built this system, but this system stood tall, very little flood impacts, and it was at that point they realized they didn't actually upgrade the electrical or water infrastructure, and both of those failed massively. So now they've turned their attention to those. But this just got its first real test, and actually business councils came out (coughs) saying, New Orleans will always be open for business. We've solved the problem after Hurricane Ida. So this, that was a big day.
2: And then I just thought I would mention another plan that was done. Like a lot of the post-Katrina planning, this was done with philanthropic money. And this was a big consortium of, of consultants from New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, from around the U.S. and from the Netherlands, developed what was called the Greater New Orleans Urban Water Plan. Mm-hmm. And this was a very interesting piece of work in this kind of space that we think about now of this kind of, multifunctional blue-green infrastructure. People sometimes talk about sponge cities. So it's thinking about all of the infrastructure in this city, how it can all be purposed to make the city more robust to future floods. How can we redesign this place to let the water in without it causing loss of life and damage to people's property. So, what are the things that we can do to find a way of of living with water? And so, it involved um, significant changes to the stormwater system and the pumping system to make it more rational. You know, integrated open space, integrated wetlands, parks, redesigning the canals, for example, so that they are capable, so they are part of this open space network capable of holding a lot more floodwaters and then some, you know, and then into the detailed design of what might happen in neighbourhoods, canals, streets, the redesign of all streets to hold water. So, while it wasn't publicly funded, Some of these projects, there's been a lot of... It's been very influential. Quite a lot of this work has... Well, some of this work has been done. hasn't been done on that kind of broad, integrated scale that it should be.
3: And I'll just jump in on the water plan. In the spirit of places around the world learning from each other, like we're here today, that was sort of termed the Dutch Dialogues or built on the back of a partnership with... Engineers, really the Dutch government, um, supporting of flood mitigation and drainage infrastructure, and bringing them over to work. And interestingly, they were like, "We're more than happy to come," because after the 1950s northern North Sea storms came in and decimated the Netherlands, New Orleans was actually the leading light in urban stormwater management in the world. So they actually came and learned a lot of engineers in. In our city, who you know went back and forth. So there is this history of exchange between places that are dealing with these kinds of these kinds of things.
2: So I should say the city did eventually come to the party with with what was called the Unified New Orleans Plan, which was not especially visionary, uh, not especially effective, but it was a plan. Um, one of the many issues sort of around what happened in this city was around these questions about should people be allowed to come back? Should there be parts of the city that were not redeveloped? What happened in this kind of maelstrom of, of little control and after the Green Dots fiasco was that everybody was able to come back and rebuild wherever they liked, no matter what the vulnerability of those places was. And they, they had a plan that is not unlike the proposals here that was called...
3: Well, the Road Home Program, yeah. if the equivalent of the Resilient Homes Program, except you've got to remember that about 85% of the housing stock was eligible for this program in New Orleans.
2: And also that in the US, the federal government is the insurer of last resort so that even people who lived in the bottom of the bowl or in the lower ninth ward could insure their, what you would think would be uninsurable houses already so that...
3: Yeah, there's a publicly backed flood program by FEMA, the equivalent of our NEMA that actually underwrote flood insurance and made it affordable for everyone. So Interesting I'm, idea.
2: I'm conscious of the fact that we're at the end of our time. This is just a reminder that, th- that you know, what ended up w- was a city that was whiter, generally whiter and older and richer than the city had been before. So quite significant structural population change as a result of this. But I'm going to hand back to uh, Nicole.
1: Well, very reluctantly because I was absolutely... Um, on the edge of my chair, literally, um, listening to that. And I picked up some of the key decisions that were being made as you went through, Um, and I gather one of the things that was on the table and then seemed to be sort of, I guess, not... um, There wasn't a fixed position at the end of the day was this question around retreat versus, you know, rebuilding in place in a more resilient way. Would one of if you'd like to comment on that.
3: Well, first off, New Orleans is in the lower Mississippi River Delta. If you were going to go to the equivalent of high ground afforded to us locally, you'd have to go 300 kilometres. So relocating out of harm's way isn't really an option. So it was either rebuild it or abandon it. Um, then secondary to that, there are, there's this question of strategically not rebuilding in the most at-risk places. And um, what you have is a low-income African-American population living in all of the the most at-risk places, so most disempowered in in the political process, but against the backdrop of the event that was Katrina and the rest of the world seeing this inequity playing out on their TV screens was absolutely political poison. So no leader of any political party was willing to speak up around limiting where people might rebuild. And Um,
2: and, and largely very low-income African-American communities, but significantly in some of the most at-risk areas, the wealthiest African-American communities as well. Yeah, the Around places like Gentilly... Yeah. ...and, uh, you know, some of the New Orleans East. But anyway, so it was completely politically toxic. You could not have that conversation about whether the city should change
3: its footprint. And I'll add as an anecdote to that, if it wasn't strange enough already, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie came to town and said, we're gonna rebuild in the most challenged spot and that way we've shown it can be done and it absolutely will get done. So they hired 14 famous architects to design custom houses for low-income people. It was all very wonderful. Um, But they've just, I'm gonna sound so cynical. There was a lot, you know, they were trying to do the right thing. It was called Make It Right, actually. Was cook- yep. um, and they've just had to settle lawsuits because, amidst their experimentation on super sustainable and low cost housing, they ended up building a lot of houses susceptible to mould and rot that became health hazards. Um, but I
2: should also say it's an object less project ever. <laughs> so much political grandstanding, famous architects lending their names to things. It was obviously. I mean, people filled with idealism. It had train wreck written all over it Analyze. from day one. And, and just the... And, and so many people jumping on the bandwagon because they wanted to be in something with Brad Pitt. Such a waste of money. Such a waste of energy. And the thing is, they couldn't persuade anyone. They couldn't persuade anybody from the Lower Ninth Ward to move into these stupid houses at the end of it. I mean, they were... Hu- in, 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 in many instances, they were housing, you know, lovely college students from the West Coast who'd come to be part of, you know, the Renaissance of the Lower North. Water I mean, anyway. I'm interrupting mm-hmm.
1: because uh, <laughs> I sense this could be a very, very interesting <laughs> discussion. But, drove me um, crazy, um, let's clearly. Let's, let's keep to the um, agenda. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to pick you up on... It with, I've picked up two programs I think. We've heard about the public housing redevelopment one which became a mixed income project, picked up part of the sort of wider move in the US and there are definitely parallels here in Australia (coughs) around, you know, mixed income redevelopment of public housing. Then the Road Home. Am I right that the Road Home program that you're talking about was like a buyback? just clarified that yeah.
3: it had three components to it the first was it provided repairs if you wanted to stay the second was if you wanted to sell it but remain living in the state because it was a state program you got up to the cap in both cases the cap was $150,000 i'll contextualize that in a minute and the third option was that if you'd had enough of the state of louisiana you would get up to a maximum of 60% of 100000 So if you wanted to cash out of the state, they gave you a little bit. Now remember, that doesn't sound like much money. One, housing is significantly cheaper than it is over here there, but two, it's still not enough money. Two, we had the national flood insurance program. So to a lot of people, they didn't even need the full 150 to make the gap to make them whole. And so that's how that system worked. For a sense of scale, I know we've been talking about there were 2,000 properties promised, then it went down to 1,000. It was about 130,000 properties were approved for assistance in the three, the three streams. They spent over $10 billion. Uh, the vast majority were repair in place.
1: Repair in place, okay. And look, the last um, program I wanna pick you up on is in relation to schools. Can you tell us very briefly, you know, was there an impact? I mean, I went to Trinity, Um, it's amazing to see Trinity and other schools now on Southern Cross University campus, but
2: Dan's got some numbers about the schools. Yeah, so,
3: well, Elizabeth is right. It was massively underfunded. Um, can't go into American urban history, but around issues of white flight and white people leaving the inner cities, leaving lower income non-white population bases coming into schools who were only funded by the tax base, which is all of a sudden gone. So you ended up with hardworking teachers in really challenging environments. That was the situation before Katrina. Um, And there were 126 schools. I looked this up this morning to get my numbers right. So essentially, um, the state took over the school, the local public school district. It's run at the local government level. So, they took over 108 of 126 schools. Um, I, there were only five others that could get running in any sense, and they were deemed to be left in, you know, that the local school board could keep running them. They were the best performing schools. But regardless, and, and I think to your point a bit, um, the facilities issue is really the big one, and it gets oh, the slide that was up here earlier, we're getting older there was nowhere for young people to go to school. 126 school buildings, 112 of them deemed uninhabitable and unrepairable. So you think, where where do people go to school? So my son, who's 14, has been at the same school since kindy. He's been in five different buildings, only one of them actually a school building. No, there were two, but th- that first one, there were three different schools in the one school building and it was an active construction site.
2: My daughter went to school in a shipping container. Yeah. With Brad and Angelina's kids, I should
3: say. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the school, what happened in the school, and, and I think this is a point I was getting to a little bit with the public housing, is against this backdrop um, that basically the policy makers are going to experiment on the city with what they think is the best idea of the day. That's me just being very direct about what I think it is. I'm with the best of, in, with the best of intentions for the most part. But the model of um, reforming public education was to do what are called charter schools, where a group of citizens, or in some case a non-profit organisation with some local community input, actually puts together a proposal, a five-year proposal for a public school. That includes, I'm going like this because charters are documents and they're about that thick um, and they have budgets and if it's reviewed and if you're deemed like that's a good proposal, they'll give you the public budget to run that to run that school. Then they recruit a bunch of 18-year-olds that just want to change the world and so basically we had no teachers union left in place. We had a group of really young ID system to teach a bunch of really traumatised kids with no classrooms. It, It was, and that was really the scenario for 10 years before they were able to catch up with the infrastructure. Now, I will say some of the result, they've been doing this for long enough to get some results on this. I'm not lambasting this because... Pre-Katrina, the education system was unacceptable, 100%. No-one was arguing that a major intervention was needed. Um, It was a shame they had to do it all at once under these traumatic circumstances. And what they've found is that kids in the middle who were really struggling because of the poor quality of education and the poor infrastructure were doing better under this new world order, but the kids that whether it was situations at home or they needed more attention or something like that were actually worse off than than before.
1: But just to recap you know we've had big themes around planning or the lack of planning around policy experimentation around housing around social division and disadvantage being exacerbated and around the importance of young people. I'm also hearing that in these massive upheavals and interruptions, there are also, as Dan just alluded to, perhaps some opportunities as well that had there been um, structures in place might have been grasped in a better way. We're gonna ask Dan and Elizabeth for their lessons and we're gonna ask Jamie to kick us off by contextualising this in relation to Australia and this place and then I'm gonna be handing over to you. And this is just a way of allowing um, Dan and Elizabeth to reflect a little bit on, you know, what they've already talked about. If I could ask you, and I might start with you, Dan, for maybe one lesson that you want to leave us with so far from, um, you know, that incredible experience of being at the front line in New Orleans.
3: Sure and I'm glad for this because I realised I was like oh we've just told a pretty grim story but a lot of wonderful beautiful things happened and continue to happen out of this Um, I mean my lesson is what I've tried to bring back into Lismore which is where I lived before I moved over there Um, and that is the fundamental importance of connecting local knowledge to technical expertise and that the, the most successful outcomes came out of dialogues where that was not only, like, a table was set and people could come and have that chat, but was actually supported to keep working on it. And in Katrina, what was shown through the myriad planning processes, Elizabeth, she only put a couple of them up. There are a lot more. Um, so many of them are privileged technical expertise, and it was kind of token community, um, And the best outcomes come when local knowledge is really valued, like technical expertise. We need both of those things. And we need a place and structures to support them working together effectively over a longer period. I'm I'm not talking about a community engagement budget per project. I'm talking about it as a way of working. And it was the neighbourhood associations and local and state government agency partners that set up those systems that ultimately had the best, the best outcomes. And I will say, she gets mixed reviews in New Orleans. But the current mayor was a community leader of a neighbourhood association called Broadmoor. That was one of those leading community groups after Hurricane Katrina. She rose through the ranks and is now mayor. So
2: that's my one takeaway.
1: Elizabeth, what's your lesson? I think,
2: you know, without discounting the fact that these events have terrible, terrible impacts on people and long-lasting trauma associated with them, I think the important thing to remember is in the aftermath, there is a tremendous opportunity to do things differently particularly when the impact has been as severe as it has been in this region, I think this is an opportunity to build back better, to try to create communities that are going to be able to live in a more robust and sustainable way going forward. Thanks, Elizabeth.
1: So, let's move now to Jamie um, and... Remember, I've introduced introduced Jamie already. He's got an extraordinary range of experience, particularly um, in Australia. So I want to ask you to draw on that experience in other parts of Australia with flood events and possibly other natural disasters as well. How does the Australian experience more widely echo, or is it different to what we've just heard about in relation to New Orleans? Uh,
4: well, I think it's certainly a bit of both, really. Um, As you can tell from my accent, uh, I grew up in the States, um, not in New Orleans, but uh, up in redneck New York. And, uh, you know, culturally, Australia and America aren't really all that different. I mean, there's a lot of differences, I suppose, but um, culturally, we kind of all look and feel the same, I suppose. Um, In terms of how people respond in a disaster, I imagine... um, people are generally people, you know, and when you go through a traumatic event, when you go through a natural disaster, reactions can vary, of course, but I think it's a similar sort of process that people go through. So my experience in Grantham, you know, you had the whole spectrum of, of people and responses to disaster. I can remember moments where um, one minute someone's throwing a beer can at me. And the next minute, they're crying on my shoulder, you know? It's it's that type of trauma that affects people. And I think that's probably universal, uh, would be my my guess. Um, So how do the responses differ? I think in Australia, we have a system that is probably uh, maybe a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more transparent. America is a very complex political uh, situation. And these guys can speak to it a lot more than I. Um, I specifically remember with Hurricane Katrina, I was in Australia, living in Australia at the time, um, it just spoke to racism to me, you know, institutionalized racism, and I grew up in redneck America where racism was alive and well, so um, I think you have those cultural, it's not to say racism doesn't exist here, it certainly does, but in America you have so many cultural layers to it um, that make it more complex. Um, But you've also got here a a simpler sort of system. In America, you've got sometimes four or five different layers of government, all with different views and different ideas. Um, Here, you've got a little bit less, a little bit more streamlined. So my experience is um, I think Australia and New Zealand as well are best placed around the world for dealing with disasters. I think we are well-positioned.
1: I asked Dan and Elizabeth for them to draw out a lesson each from the New Orleans experience, I'd invite you, um, Jamie, to do the same. Give us a lesson from what you've heard, from what Dan and Elizabeth have said. And maybe also give us a lesson from Grantham as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Dan and Elizabeth's comments, I can, I can certainly agree with lo- local led and local knowledge is so important but if there's one standout for me, and, and they probably touched on it, leadership. You know, you talk about Hurricane Katrina and politics and all this sort of thing, nobody willing to stand up and say what's right or lead a, drive a bus, as, as we say. You know, no one there to drive the bus. If no one's driving the bus, nobody's going anywhere. Um, to me, leadership and my experience in Grantham was, it was so vital. You, you had to have someone or people willing to sort of put their neck out there and say, this is the direction we need to head and come hell or high water, that's what we're gonna do. Um, Everybody, you know, you can go on to Facebook or Snapchat, everybody's got a meme about leadership, you know, what it means and all this sort of thing. To me, it's as simple as someone who can stand up there and say, okay, this is our problem. We got three solutions, none of them are particularly good. Um, We're gonna go with option B. And let's go, let's rock and roll. And if you start heading down option B and you realize this option sucks, don't be afraid to pivot. You know, don't be afraid to make changes as you go because you're never gonna know until you start heading down that path. One of, the, one of the big problems I see in disaster recovery around the world, but in Australia as well is indecision. You know, you, you can't be in a situation where no decisions are being made. You're better off making the wrong decision Um, than making no decision at all, and that's my thoughts on on leadership. So if there's one kind of takeaway that hasn't been covered, I think leadership. Someone's got to drive the bus at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting observation as well about not being afraid to change direction or to change what you're doing if new information emerges or you realise it's not working. Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. Now, look, we've we've had four or five questions that have been submitted, potentially by people who are here in this room, but certainly submitted ahead of time. There's a mixture of questions. I'm not sure if we'll get to all of them. Start to put your hand up if you want me to come to you. I've, okay well,
5: uh, Jenny, my name is, and Jamie, my question's to you, and I agree entirely, entirely with the things you talk, you're talking about. We are this morning on a well-being zoom that we have fairly regularly. We started the conversation about the second year um, anniversary and how to mark that. We've heard from what's happening what happened in New Orleans, that it's a long, long process. One of the things that's lacking at the moment, I believe, anyway, is communication. The communication from decisions such as from the body you represent, it's crickets. No-one's hearing, and one of the great calls that people are saying is if we're going to relocate and we want – everyone here wants Lismore's community to stay strong and stay united, we don't want that disbursement that we've seen in New Orleans, but that is happening. If we want people to stay here, they need to know where they can go. They need land. When on earth are we going to hear the communication on the primary site for relocation or rebuilding? Is there going to be an opportunity for people to move their solid timber homes um, to that site, not just uh, building a new brick and tile? When is communication going to improve?
4: Uh, just to be clear, I don't, I'm not representing NRC. I, I, yeah, so I, um, I would love to give you and everyone an answer to that, but I don't know. It's, it's not, I'm not responsible for that. I'm a consultant that provides advice and support. That's not me abdicating any responsibility or leadership like I've said, but you're absolutely correct. So I don't disagree with the thing you're saying. People should know what to expect and what's happening and what's around the corner. Now, can government provide those answers? Uh, sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. I don't know uh, the decision-making process in the, in the RA at the moment around that, but, you know, the, the Grantham experience for me, we, we told people in the community that we were going to move them there about a month after the flood. You know, and, and what that did is that galvanized the community. that makes a big difference with the psyche. Now, it wasn't so much that I want to be there in six months. It was I know where I'm going so I can get through the next day okay. And I've got things to do. I can think about planning. I can think about what I'm going to do with my house. And I can think about my family. That's what it really is. So, rest assured, when I get asked what I think uh, by the powers that be, that's exactly what I say to them. You know, I, I say... People need to just have certainty about where they're going to go. They don't need a home tomorrow, although they would like one. Um, they just need to understand whether tomorrow's going to be better than today. That's the problem.
6: Thanks, Jamie. Um, hi, my name's Georgie. Um, I'm not sure who this is best um, directed at on the panel, but I wanted to draw some comparisons to the UK. My accent probably gives that away. Um, And uh, whilst I was last back there, I I, um, took up a new interest in regenerative agriculture and I found myself reading a book by James Rebanks. I don't know if anyone's heard about him, but he um, wrote about the... I think it was around 2015, whole villages were swept away in the UK, specifically uh, around the Lake District and, and north of UK. And he shed a light on the responsibility that farmers have actually to, um, to help rewild rivers and look at the degradation that farmers have been doing to natural tributaries, which actually resulted in a lot of this huge amount of water suddenly flowing through villages and, and washing them away. And um, from my reading uh, in this area, it seems to be a conversation that just hasn't been had yet. Uh, And I might have missed something, but I wanted to know if we were talking to farmers and looking at the agricultural sector on how we could be potentially avoiding these situations a little bit in the future.
3: Um, I've got some positive news on that one, and actually a program, we've had a speaker in here before, that Joe Levin, the Member Services Director for the Casino Co-op, which is the cattle co-op and the owner of the abattoir, and he runs a program called the River Crystal Initiative that supports members... They've got over 400 members, so they take, take up a large part of the catchment, and they are engaging in catchment repair work, ranging from agricultural land management practices that minimise negative impacts, as he says, as simple as moving moving the watering tank on a schedule rather than yeah. leaving it in the same place. They're doing extensive riparian reveg, They're doing education around soil quality and funding soil tests for farmers to repair they're really focusing on um, improving the carbon content in their soil because, among the many benefits, it can hold significantly more water. So we actually are lucky that we have a really engaged agricultural sector in the cattle in the cattle sector. But a lot of groups are actually coming together, realising their shared their shared goals. Um, so-
2: this is this is an an area where I think the solutions are very well understood. There is some very good work going on with a range of different community-based groups across this region. I think the issues, you know, the, the, the need is for Uh, Things that can operate at the regional scale, a way of bringing these things together and trying to fund broader scale work to really start to have impact. The difficulty is with that, that it's on a different kind of timescale to try to think about more immediate questions of flood mitigation, but you have to look at all of the issues to do with land management across the catchment to try to to address these issues in the biggest way to have the greatest impact over time?
7: Hello. Uh, my name's Trev. Um, I live in South Lismore, so my place flooded. And um, um, I also got told by the NRCC that, uh, that, you know, we wouldn't be getting anything from them. I've also been told by my insurance company that we don't want to insure you anymore. But that's actually not the really real question I'm asking. But because... Before the the state government came here, before the NRC came here, there were dreams and visions that people were talking about. They wanted to see their houses relocated and and we saw little groups appear and stuff. After they came here, we stopped doing that and we waited uh, because we were waiting for answers. Um, We still haven't been spoken to or asked what it is that we would like, even if it's some of the really simple things, and I'm wondering if you can give us some tips on how we can get that process to
3: happen. I mean, I think it's it's easy to stand here and, and say it, and it would need some technical resources, I know, but... I, I don't think we should be waiting for a centralised planning process. I think, I think that energy that you talked about, and people stopped because we were told there was going to be a centralised planning process. Um, I think it's time to get started again. And actually, in New Orleans, literally these plans, as Elizabeth said, it was called the Unified New Orleans Plan because this organic upwelling of plants had legitimacy. They got far enough down the road that they had to come and put their arms around all of them and all of the people involved in those planning processes were central in the unified New Orleans plan and so I'm cognizant. I'm telling you that the burden's back on you guys and you go and work but that's how it worked in New Orleans and in the end uh, the, the state government had to put their arms around all of those plans and incorporate them or there was no legitimate plan. And so, I think people need, I think we all need to start planning. Yeah.
2: And I do think that being very clear about what it is that you're looking for is going to serve, serve you well if the mechanics of, of government do start to actually operate in a way that might support you into the future.
8: Hi there, like, my name's Darren Williams, and this is a couple of my daughters here, and we went through the flood too, you know, we were at 1.8 meters in the house, you know. First time in the house, of course, you know, but, um, you know, I'm a good canoeist, and so I was able to get to, like, the railway line, which was, you know, like, well above, well, it ended up being knee-high above, you know, the railway line, but the railway line seems like such a, like, an important part of like an evacuation island and the highest points. And, you know, we, we could be building, I think, something on top of those lines, you know, like to, to get, you know, people in, because, you know, I was off, you know, like ferrying neighbors back and forth to the, um, the railway line. And again, you know, like waiting for this NRC back, you know, buyback, you know, like I've, I've got to buyback but then, you know, like it said, that the Resilient Lands Programme is supposed to be, and you know, rolling out in parallel with it, and it, it's not happening, you know, and it's, the timeframes just seem to be more and more. And I wondered with your New Orleans, like, whether they were given a choice. You know, you said there was about three different mm-hmm. streams. Were they mm. allocated streams, or you...?
3: No, could... it was different. So, to answer that part of the question, uh, the three streams of the Road Home Programme, you got to choose which one you you wanted. So you could choose to stay in place and get resources to rebuild, or you could choose to leave within the state or outside of the state.
2: So it was much less prescriptive in terms of maps or areas or, yeah. or anything like that. It was much more of a kind of a free-for-all
3: but what you're talking about with your experience is a kind of local knowledge and local expertise we're talking about that needs to be married up. And to Trev's question, it would be nice if there was a centralised planning process where you could come and take your ideas. That's What people did in New Orleans was get together and just come up with really rudimentary plans that they were able to bring forward with credibility because they were actually rooted in local people. So there was a credibility that no technocrat could have, you know? And the technical plans had credibility too. I, I want my city shaped by someone who went to school for at least 10 years thinking about that. But it's both of those things, yeah. you know?
9: Thanks very much for all you've said today. I've enjoyed every moment of it and sort of a bit jaw-dropping at times just to hear such honesty coming, um, I'm trying to pull my thoughts together without detracting from what's happened in Nismal, but what's ringing alarm bells for me is that we're always working on the end of the crisis, while we actually, where I live, all of the swamplands, all of the wetlands have been drained, they have dropped below sea level, they actually flooded in the last one and came under people's houses, and now we're going to build on it. So, you know, I, I heard what you said about corruption and about decisions being made in... in um, it wasn't Cyclone uh, Hurricane Katrina's fault. And because, you know, of the Lismore experience and, and, you know, working here and having lived here and friends here, it's like alarm bells are going off for me where I live. And my house didn't flood last time, but it was that far off the... Uh, floorboards and this is Lennox Head and they have just put out a brand new strategic plan after a huge amount of consultation where everyone screamed at them flood mitigation and it is not even mentioned in the plan. So I guess what I'm trying to, to come from is that it's terrible that we have to keep dealing with the crisis and the trauma of people while decisions and development and all of these still continue to be made when those people that are making those decisions actually know better. Mm
2: -hmm. This is the, you're describing the most frustrating (laughs) set of, of circumstances, which is, you know, we so often see entrenched interests who have powerful reasons to try to support the status quo or to approach these questions very much in a business-as-usual way. And that—and I mean, it's particularly hard to understand when you have the evidence right there of what happened five minutes ago. But this is... I, I think that we have to really work with this as a moment of change and you've got to hold your local politicians to account. And there have to be real consequences for that kind of of decision-making which is failing to account for these incredibly significant things that are happening right now. Hi. Hi, my name's Sarah,
10: known to a couple of folks. Um, I've just got a really quick question around, I had this same conversation with, I think it was Thomas from the St. Bernard project. Um, which was a huge philanthropic uh, charity organization that helped with the rebuilds in New Orleans and we spoke about the difference between uh, philanthropic opportunity in Australia uh, with our differing governments and there's just less money through the university <coughs> systems and rather than philanthropic funding we actually instead people want to privatize so I just um, you know there's not a there's not really an opportunity for us to have philanthropic funding of projects that are, you know, imagined through a community process, Uh, we do have to rely on our governments, which make it streamlined, but also impossible in a lot of ways. So, just wondering if, um, you know, you could speak to the difference in that and, you know...
3: Uh, I, having just moved back here, having done this work in the US for 20 years, when in my role I'd have to raise money and we could go to a diverse and healthy philanthropic sector and look for support for different ideas and sometimes we wanted to be critical of government and we needed to propose an alternative and that was a lot more possible than it is here. I I mean, the difference is in the tax code and I, I, I think Rebuilding Lismore is challenging enough rebuilding the tax code, because that's what the difference is in the US, There's reasons why there is that philanthropic environment. So unfortunately, we are sort of stuck with a, in many ways, more generous government, but it's also mostly the only game in town that can operate at scale. I mean, part of what we're trying to do here is unlock some of that to be a little more community-driven, like I mentioned earlier, not project-based, but long-term and those kinds of things. But I don't... Thomas from the St Bernard Project is right to the community um, than the situation we have here.
4: There's a... My experience in Grantham, too, is when you have a clear vision of a recovery... So we had a very clear, distinct vision of what we were going to do the philanthropic organizations donations it was very specific so for example we could go to boral and we said hey you guys corporate responsibility yep you guys are great we need you know uh 300 meters of one one meter drainage pipe give it to us and they give it to us so we could be very specific about our needs and a lot of times you you know and it wouldn't be any different here. Donations come flooding in from all these different areas and all this support and all this goodwill, but it's not targeted towards anything. When you have a clear vision of something, you can target it. So everybody in Grantham got a new fridge because we told them that's what they needed. So, you know, you, you can kind of target it.
1: Okay. I'm going to ask our um, panellists one last question, but I did want to say in relation to the Lennox head... If, if that's a proposal that's on exhibition at the moment, maybe the Living Lab could even help people with writing submissions because one of the things we do have, at least in Australia, is proposals are exhibited and public submissions need to be considered. So um, that's an opportunity to get some local knowledge, you know, on the record. So, look, it's been an, an incredible conversation as far as I'm concerned. Um, I hope the audience have got something from it. I want to ask, I'm going to ask our panellists, but really this is actually a question for the audience, but um, nevertheless, I'm going to start with you, Dan. I'm going to ask the same question to each of you. Look, you're all bringing very unique experience to bear in your work here in the Northern Rivers, and yet, and it's a very unique community as well. It would be a very big mistake to, you know, impose a cookie cutter solution from elsewhere for a year. But people elsewhere are likely to look here, as I said at the outset. And when they do and when, you know, when our, our youngest members are, you know, reflecting in twenty years' time, what will people say or what do you want people to have said as the lesson? from the Northern Rivers or, in fact, the legacy of the work that you're involved in and that the community's involved in now, Dan?
3: Well, it would take a pretty big turnaround from where we're at now because it would be the the vision of the community to go there and that what I I hope they say is, look at that, they really turned it around and they pioneered this excellent community-led process that set some new goals, had a reset, and actually charted the path, the path forward. So that's what I really hope. Because like New Orleans, um, Lismore and New Orleans do have a few things in common, not just a disaster experience. They're both really funky, kind of edgy, cool different places. And people who are here really love being here. So while Americans elsewhere were saying the city of New Orleans should be built somewhere safe in Oklahoma, people in New Orleans were saying, over my dead body and they rolled up their sleeves and they were fighting for it. And I think the same thing is true here. So I think we can do that 180 turnaround, and I think the outcomes will just be so much better uh, if that's what happens.
1: So, Jamie, you're working here, you're contributing, you know, your deep experience and, you know, passion. What do you hope is the legacy?
4: Well, <clears throat> I mean, Dan, I think, hit, hit the nail on the head, but I'd probably... A little bit simpler, Um, I called up in 2020, uh, 2022, Grantham flooded uh, quite badly, and I called up a family there, and I said, how you going? And they had relocated to the hill, and they said, we got the popcorn going, I'm watching the flood on TV, you know? Um, To me, that spoke to an outcome that was satisfying for me, because all it meant was, it wasn't earth shattering. It's just that they were safe, you know. And at the end of the day, I think if people can sit down and say, you know what, when it starts raining, I don't have to go run and find the kids' old photographs and grab my passports and and jump in the car and get the hell out of here. That, to me, is success, I suppose.
1: And, Elizabeth, you've, you know, made a big commitment, actually, to this region. Elizabeth will be playing a a really strong role here, supporting the work of the Living Lab through her role at UTS, Elizabeth, 20 years' time, what do you want them to be saying at Harvard Graduate School of Design and all of the other eminent institutions that, you know, follow your work and elsewhere in Australia, but more importantly here, what do you want people to be saying?
2: I guess what I hope is that out of this terrible series of events that have happened here, that we end up with something that is a model for how to do things differently so that, you know, as we see places all over this country and all over the world, but I'm thinking in the Australian context here, we see places more and more having to deal with and see it as a new and different way of trying to deal with this kind of adaptation. And that to me is both about the people and the kinds of processes and the way that we go about it, as well as being about new kinds of solutions to infrastructure and to land management and how we design our buildings and how we manage our catchments.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.